Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 173 of the Thick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Healing Architect, an interview with Maxine Janssens. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a really cool episode with a young woman from West Australia. She is an architect by education and trade. She's studying to be a project manager. And unfortunately, she came to the U.S. and she got sick from a tick disease or a series of tick diseases when she went home. But she's using her skills as an architect and a project manager to manage her Lyme disease. And Rich, Max taught us so much about this entire podcast interview. As a project manager, Max taught us about specific herbs, essential oils, and IV vitamins to help her overcome Lyme disease. So Matt... I think our folks are really going to enjoy this episode. I think the approach that Max is taking to healing is unique. And I think it's one that can be followed very closely as a model. So without further ado, The Healing Architect. Hey, Max, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really a blessing to be here. Well, it's a blessing to us to have you as well. We are really looking forward to this interview, and we know the folks in our community are really looking forward to this interview. So Max, tell us about where you currently live. I currently live in Perth, Western Australia. So we want to say uh, hello to everybody in Australia, and uh, we thank you for sharing uh, the wonderful Max with us. So Max, uh, talk to us about your background. What was it like growing up uh, in, um, in Australia? I was actually born in Singapore, and I moved around a lot. My dad is Belgian, and my mother's from the Seychelles Islands, so there was a lot of moving around. Um, till I was about 13 or 14. There was lots of moving. Um, so it was quite nomadic, <laughs> to say the least, So we have enjoyable. The, so we have the multinational nomadic Max on today. And uh, <laughs> so talk to us about what your, what your life was like. I mean, was, uh, was it um, interesting to learn different languages and, and have these different cultural experiences? T- talk to us about that. Yeah, um, the majority of my childhood was spent in the Seychelles. So that was climbing palm trees, running on the beach, climbing rocks, chasing lizards. Um, I have a twin brother, so we uh, were very much in the garden most of the time. <laughs> so during this time when you, were, when you were living this outdoorsy life, you and your brother, did you ever um, learn anything about ticks or tick diseases during that time in your life? The only thing I knew of ticks was that our dog had ticks. I remember we would pick them off them, but there was no conception, um, at least in that part of Africa, of tick illness to that extent. Okay, so you were generally aware of ticks, but you were not aware that they ca- they could cause human illness and they were mm-hmm. not something that you were concerned about or you learned to avoid or in any way, shape or form protect yourself from. Yeah, I would even, I remember specifically, I'd pick them off my dog and just squeeze them and just, <laughs> so it was a, quite a graphic thing. But um, yeah, there was no awareness of tick-borne disease, tick-borne illness, nothing like that. All right, so let's fast forward. Uh, you're now 13 years old and you're now moving back to Australia. Talk to us about what your experience was like in Australia. Um, it was a big transition. Um I've always kind of been in between um, because I'm kind of mixed. I've never really fitted in exactly um, with where I'm from. In Belgium, for example, I'm considered coloured, but in Seychelles I'm considered uh, Caucasian. But here I'm considered, again, a little bit in between. I think now I've um, really embraced the Australian accent, so I blend in a little bit better. (laughs) 
Um, but it was lovely overall. I think Australia's really become um, an in-between place that's become home for me. Um, I ended up staying on here, even my, though my parents kind of uh, travelled around a bit afterwards. Um, I went to university, uh, studied architecture, um, and then eventually moved back to Singapore in a weird full circle um, because my partner had a job opportunity there. So we moved to Singapore um, and then just more traveling from there, really. So talk to us about your educational experience. You said you were educated in university and you received a degree in architecture. During any of the educational experiences that you had, uh, first, before you went to university, and then after you went to university, did you ever learn anything about ticks or tick diseases? The only thing I learned, so I didn't learn anything in the actual schooling system. The only thing I learned was from one of my best friends who became really, really sick after a trip to the US. And within six months, I think her sister had watched a documentary on Netflix and came across this thing that was called Lyme disease and she thought maybe she, her sister had had it so she went for testing and that was the first time I ever heard of Lyme disease because my one of my best friends had got that diagnosis so it was on my radar and actually I, I remember vividly any holiday afterwards from then on I was doing tick checks and I was saying to my partner you know check behind my ears check all my cracks because I just want to make sure there's no <laughs> there's no ticks on me that I don't you know end up in that sort of situation that life-changing situation that happened to my friend so give us a context how long ago was that that you became aware of Lyme disease because of this friend's diagnosis and you began to change your grooming habits to check for ticks that would have been three to four years ago probably three years ago now exactly all right so now let's talk about your Lyme experience and when you first began to show the symptoms of what you now know to be uh, Lyme disease? Yeah, so I was living in Singapore at the time. I had just recently moved there, so it was in the, in the first six months of that move. Uh, we went on holiday to the US. We started, uh, where did we start? We started in Arizona, went to California, all the way to Oregon, and came back. It's one of the best holidays I've ever had of my life. <laughs> Um, I got back to Singapore, I returned back to work and really quickly I started developing cold and flus every other week and at the time I was working with children and I thought as beautiful as children are, they're incredibly dirty so I'm just assuming <laughs> back then oh, it's because there's germs and I'm not used to you know this environment, it must just because be because I'm picking up all these germs and I'm not you know as protected as I should be normally. Um, <laughs> within five months of that, I started to struggle. I was feeling frustrated as well because I was going to the doctors, I think every other week at that point, and they were just putting me on cold and flu medications, putting me on supplements. And I remember one time the doctor said to me, oh, you must not be taking your medication because you're not getting any better. So I was really starting to feel um, frustrated. And by that point, I had high blood pressure. It was consistently over 160, which I had never had before in my life. I was unbalanced, nauseous, fatigued, dizzy, and my ears were constantly ringing. It's like as if I had cups over my ears and I couldn't barely hear what anyone was saying to me. 
Um, and I had a constant low grade fever. I was waking up every two hours, every night, drenched in sweat. Um, and I remember going back to Perth just for a weekend. I went back for two days just to see my old doctor because I thought, you know, she's seen me for some years now. Maybe she has some idea what's going on or at least we have that relationship. And she looked at me and I remember she looked very worried. Um, I had full-blown acne all over my face and she said to me, I'm not sure what's going on with you, but I want you to go back when you go back, see another doctor. She says, I'm going to put you on doxycycline for your skin for one month. Um, and I said, okay. <laughs> I started the doxy. I flew back to Singapore. I was back at work. I was expecting to feel better because that's usually what happens when you go on antibiotics. You start to feel better quickly. I felt 10 times worse. The nausea was worse. Everything was worse. I had intense brain fog. I had no idea I was hexing. Um, and I think it got to the point where I had done the one month of doxycycline. I stopped that. I remember sitting in this satay strip in Singapore and I remember feeling a, an ounce of relief from the nausea and that lasted for about two days. And then again, it just hit straight afterwards after that and then that's when I really started to feel like there was something a little bit more going on um a month after that that was six months then after my trip to the U.S. it significantly worsened I could hardly walk it went from um still being quite active and managing my fatigue to bone crushing fatigue where people would be staring at me on the street because I'd have to sit down I would even sit down on the, on the ground I think you know when you're fatigued in that state you just do crazy things that even you looking back you wonder why you did it but you just have to um I was struggling to read and speak fluently which is really difficult with my job at the time because I was teaching um it's funny I actually used to fake an American accent to try and get past the stuttering that I was having <laughs> during story time when I was reading the books How'd that work for you? <laughs> it worked quite well <laughs> within its respect. Um, but yeah, the brain fog increased. Um, I, where I worked, it was one stop away from where I lived on the train line. And it would take me hours to get off just the one stop because I would keep missing it. And I messaged my friend who has Lyme disease. And I said to her, I can't get off my stop. Like I, I, I don't know how to get off. I was starting to almost just be overwhelmed with it. And I said, it's, it's a stop I take twice a day. I don't know how I'm not getting off. I literally went around in circles. So Max, let's, Max think, let's, let's focus on that for a minute because I, that, I find that to be really fascinating. How long was the distance between where you got on the train and where you got off the train? Meaning how long should it have taken had you not had the challenges that Lyme disease created for you? To it get should have taken me five minutes. And it was taking you an hour to get off the train. It took me, I think at one, one day it took me two hours to get off. So give us some more detail about what was happening. So you'd be on the train, you're, the train would arrive to the stop. And why couldn't you process or was it a processing yeah. issue getting off the train? Talk to us about that. The only thing I can remember is just I wasn't present. It was just like total days zombie style. <laughs> 
not being able to tune into my surroundings, not being able to respond in the usual way I would respond to information. Um, I, I remember I was even perplexed by it afterwards. I think I, I think I, my parents called me afterwards and I said, oh, I'm really struggling. I was trying to get somewhere and I just couldn't go there. So I decided to go back home, but I couldn't even get back home. Like, it was this, this weird situation. And I think that's when I started to really... Um, start to trust myself that it was beyond it was beyond what the doctors were saying was stress or um, possible pregnancy because I knew those were not what my body was telling me. So let's walk back a little bit together and focus on your trip to the U.S. and um, and what you were prepared for when you came to the U.S. because it sounds to me like you were aware that ticks and Lyme disease were a problem in the U.S. because you had a friend who had a prior experience. And that experience mm -hmm. was so meaningful to you that you began to do tick checks in Australia even before you came to the U.S. Yeah. So, you know, sort of a, a, looking at that experience as sort of a foreshadowing experience, what did you do? What were you concerned about when you came to the U.S. on the trip? And what did you do to protect yourself from becoming, you know, the victim of Lyme disease the way your mm -hmm. friend had been when she took a trip to the US. So how I originally started was just by covering up and doing checks. Um, I was doing that in Australia, in Bali, when we were going on holiday, everywhere we went. When we went to the US, I stepped it up a bit of a notch and I started using beet spray. And if I look back at photos, I'm completely covered. Um, not even my ankles are showing. Um, I guess it was the advantage of it being colder, uh, but I was consciously making those efforts to protect my skin, protect my areas of my body okay. from so, potential tick bites. So you were aware of Lyme disease. You were aware that that was a risk when you came to the US. You were spraying yourself with DEET. You were wearing long clothing. Were you also checking both yourself and was your partner checking you as you had described earlier? Yes, yes, all of the above. <laughs> so now, during your time in the U.S., did you find a tick biting you, or did you find your partner find a tick biting you? I didn't. I didn't see any tick on my body whatsoever. Um, there's no. I actually sometimes go back to it, and I, I try to wonder, did I see a tick? But I really didn't. I really didn't see a tick. <laughs> Now, were you also doing partner checks every day? Meaning was your partner checking you and you checking your partner or was that something that you were doing less often? Uh, we were doing it. I was mostly the one initiating it because I thought it was a fun exercise as well. But uh, yeah, those were going on through the day. <laughs> and, and, and of course it, it is a fun exercise for partners to do and you are actually emotionally rewarded with, with oxytocin when you do check one another. So it is actually a mm -hmm. good thing from an emotional and a partnership standpoint, as well as physical. But I'm really, really fascinated by the fact that you come to the US, you're prepared for this problem, you're, you're checking yourself, you're having your partner check you, yet you still get bitten by a tick. The tick was feeding on you for some period of time to the point where you ultimately do suffer from Lyme disease from that trip. Now, are you mm -hmm. sure it's from the trip, meaning, meaning when you came to the US and we welcomed you with open arms and we also, are you sure we also gave you, we gave you that disease or is it possible that you could have suffered that disease that, you know, that tick bite in some other place on your travels? 
I mean, it's always possible. I have gone over the scenario quite a few times and I do believe it was from the US just because of how the timeline played out. It was really within a month after the US, um, I think within three weeks I had cold and flus every other week and then it really quickly progressed. I mean, before that I was total picture of health, um, climbing thousands of steps in different countries, surfing, um, exercising multiple times a week. It was really, you could really draw a line in the sand from um, well and unwell. Now, Max, one of the things that we've learned through the 175 interviews that we've done is that in some cases there is a connection between a bite and the development of a chronic illness, but it's actually pretty rare, meaning especially when you have young people who are healthy, in most cases, they're able to manage the, you know, the various um, bacteria and viruses and protozoa. And now we've learned worms that are spit into us by, um, by, um, by ticks. But what happens is we generally have an immune disrupting event that causes our body to lose the ability to manage all mm -hmm. of these, um, all of these germs that were spit into us. Uh, and that's when we get sick. So do you think it's possible that all of the travels that you were doing to the US and all of the other things that were going on in your life perhaps were immune disrupting and that your body's ability to manage something that happened long before you came to the US, not that I'm defensive about you know, mm -hmm. you're getting sick here. Um, perhaps it was something other than a tick bite in the US, but it was just the travels and the stresses and everything else that were going on in your life that perhaps caused you to suffer an immune disrupting event and allowed a, uh, a previous tick bite to cause you to suffer your illness? I mean, looking back, it was probably one of the best times in my life because I think it was the first time I'd really embraced adulthood and left home and moved country. And it was the first time I was moving country for myself too and not for um, my dad's job or a project that the family had to move for. So it was really an exciting time in my life and a joyful one too one of my um most fond memories looking back is um when I was on in um is it Death Valley National Park and I was on the salt plains at Badwater Basin and I have this just fond memory of just standing there and it was total peace and total quiet and it's it was really a good time in my life so I'm open to the idea that it could have been a previous tick bite. I think with this stuff, you you learn that nothing is ever really um, what it seems also. So <laughs> it could so, be. So Max, you shared with us that you had these developing symptoms. Talk to us about how these developing symptoms were now affecting your life. You gave us one example where you sort of had this depersonalization event where you were sort of outside of your body and you couldn't even get off the train. What other... Um, effects were these developing symptoms having on your life, meaning on your studies, on your work, on mm -hmm. your relationships, both social and romantic relationships? How is this all affecting you? Socially, it was a quite a big one because you start to, with my journey, even though in retrospect, the symptoms came on quite suddenly, it was also in a sense, while I was living it, it was happening quite gradually. It wasn't something where I could immediately pinpoint, oh, I'm super sick now. It was it was quite gradual when it was happening. Um, so socially, it was a big one. I, in Singapore, there's a great nightlife. So it was, you know, we'd go out every night after work or, you know, even it's just a nice 
casual night out. It would be um, me feeling like, no, I just want to go home because I had to negotiate with myself. Can I actually make it home if I do that extra stop or if I, you know, if I work a little bit longer, am I actually going to be able to get home because the fatigue at that point is getting so bad. Um, it was not uncommon for me at that point for my partner to physically sometimes pick me up and carry me. And looking back, I think people must have thought I was just, I don't know what they would have thought. It was broad daylight. They would have thought, what is this girl? What's going on with this girl? You know, we'd literally be like piggyback carried. And even at those point sometimes I couldn't even hold him with my arms even just hold myself up so it was really bone crushing fatigue so Max how did you feel when you were so sick that you had to be physically carried that your you know that your body was so weak that you couldn't walk from point a to point b weirdly I laughed about it (laughs) I would I would make jokes about it and maybe that's part of my coping mechanism I think if I didn't laugh about it, I probably would have been crying. <laughs> but I made I made laughter out of it. I, I found ways. I said, you know, this must look really funny right now. And my, my partner knew how sick I was. He, he'd never seen me like that before. But he also said to me, he's like, oh, you're still, you know, you still got a good attitude about it. And I said, yeah, well, I said, you just have to, because I think that's the only thing that's going to get you by really is that um, sense of self that you can still carry through. So talk to us about how your partner was reacting to your developing symptoms. And do you think there was any point where you were disappointed in your inability to be the partner you wanted to be? He was really worried. He would, he'd be checking on me multiple times a day and not that we're distant partners, but you know, we also enjoy our own time when we're doing our own thing, but he was really worried about me. He still is actually, he's really, it's, it's been amazing actually how it's changed our relationship because it's brought us from, I'm getting emotional talking about it. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing when someone can see you beyond from you know, you being sick or you having illness where, you know, other people would be, I guess, expecting more from you, expecting you to show up or look in a certain way or act in a certain way. It's beautiful to have someone not expect that <laughs> and just see you beyond all of that. So while, while we all wipe our eyes from the tears that you're causing us all to... <laughs> uh, Talk to us about how this was affecting your parents. How were they reacting to your developing symptoms? Um, It was very hard for them because they were in Australia. Um, So they would call and then, you know, um, I would say, oh, I I couldn't go to work today because I couldn't couldn't stand up to get out of the the apartment. So they were really worried. Um, But it was interesting that when I did come back, there was this weird adjustment period because... You know, I was saying all these things, I can't do this, I can't do that, and I'm struggling to do this now, but you look at me and you don't see that. <laughs> so it is a, um, it was a wake-up call in that sense of how invisible um, these symptoms can be and how um, even though debilitating they are, they're very silent <laughs> 
in that respect of how they speak volumes to other people because you know we we're used to looking at people for what they present to us so max one of the challenges that we've seen in our podcast is that romance generally doesn't survive long and it sounds from what you just shared with us that you and your partner have been able to maintain your relationship despite the challenges that you you've had with Lyme disease so can you talk to us about why you believe your relationship has been able to survive despite all of the challenges that you and he and together you've had to face? So actually I took some, I guess, inspiration from my friend, my best, one of my best friends who had Lyme. Her relationship at the time did not survive. Um, so I think seeing her go through that and I'm very, if one of my friends goes through something, I go through it with them. So <laughs> When then I, you know, um, finally got the diagnosis of uh, Lyme disease and co-infections, in my head I thought, okay, I need to prepare myself and prepare my partner um, just in respects of I'm going to go through this journey and I have no choice in that journey. I'm going to go through it whether I like it or not. And I was kind of cutthroat to him. I kind of, you know, I had this conversation with him one day and I said, I'm going to go through this. And if you want to go through that with me, um, I would like you to, but I don't need you to. And I don't expect you to if you don't want to. But I need 110% because that's what I'm going to give this and I need that from you too. So it was kind of this <laughs> weird chat beforehand um, and this adjustment period, I guess, for both of us where um, we both you know, I guess had to make our own decisions of how much are we going to put into this um, while this is going on? Because this is really, you know, these situations are really life-changing. It, it throws everything on another foot that it's not used to being on. So now as the good architect, you began to build your plan. And part of that plan was to talk with your partner about what it is that you anticipated that you and he were going to have to face together. Now, it's one thing to mm -hmm. say, okay, Max, I sign up. It's another <laughs> thing to go through the journey together and deal with all the challenges that you and he were required to face. So talk to us about how, even though he was kind enough to say, I, um, I sign up, um, I'll go on the journey with you. What other things were you and he able to do together so that he was able to stay on the journey with you and you were able to stay on the journey with him? For me, it was really about total transparency. And I think before that, I'd always kind of been one of those girls that was like, oh, no, a little mystery is nice. You know, it keeps her romance alive, whatever. But um, this, there's no mystery in this anymore. Um, <laughs> I really had to become an open book. Um, I relate it to just pure glass because I think it's already hard enough in yourself to sometimes validate what's going on because a lot of the time, you know, you're experiencing something and you're not sure if it's sometimes even real because it's just so out of this world. You're like, is this even possible that this is happening? Um, and that's an adjustment period in the beginning. So I had to just really be transparent and say, um, this is how I'm feeling today. Um, and then he would say, is there anything I can do? And often um, it would just be something small like oh, a glass of water or anything. But a lot of the time it was just having someone there to even just ask the question. 
So you use the tool of radical self-advocacy where you were just yeah. advocating for yourself and you were just sharing what was going on and you were letting him know how you were feeling and what your needs were. And how was he responding to that? Meaning what was he doing that allowed him to have his needs met so that he could continue on this journey in a healthy way? He was doing the same. So he would say, you know, this is how I'm feeling too. And I'm feeling this and I'm feeling this. And I would, it was really just, I think a matter of communication and just acceptance because how I saw it is that we both chose each other in this journey. Um, even I see it as a journey that we had before. This is just, I guess, another chapter, um, but we both chose that. So it's just a matter of acceptance and um, not feeling like there's necessarily something you have to do about it. I feel like there can be a lot of feelings going on and not necessarily um, an immediate response or an immediate fix or something you can relate to it. But I feel like just having that transparency and being able to honour and thank that person for listening is really, really beautiful. Were there any times on the journey where you either got frustrated with him or he got frustrated with you? And how do you deal with those frustrations if there, if there were any? I think there's been lots of little ones. I think for the most part, we've been pretty good. <laughs> uh, there's just been little ones. And, and usually it's just come down to um, not communicating fully or just or forgetting that the person doesn't know what's actually going on in the reality of the other. Um, so I guess it's just, um, I think with trust in general, um, trust of any relationship or um, harmony in any relationship, it always goes back to disharmony and then harmony and then disharmony again and then harmony. Not that it's an up and down cycle, but um, that's, I guess, the, the cycle that builds it stronger than it was before. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about your mindset in this relationship. So it sounds to me that you made your peace with the reality that although you were in a healthy relationship with a good partner, he was never able, he was never going to be able to truly appreciate what you were feeling because he has not been in your shoes and you were mm -hmm. at peace with that. And you understood that that was something that you had to make your peace with. Yeah. Yeah. And I said to him as well, I said, I'm not going to know what it's like in your shoes of having someone that I love, you know, be so sick and I'm not going to know how that's going to feel because I'm going to want to fix that. And I can't. So it's, it's, I guess, a, a thing of, you know, constantly in a sense, switching shoes and then switching back forward again. <laughs> so again, keeping your architectures, your architect's hat on, are there any other pieces to this that you constructed that allowed this relationship to succeed that we can pass on to other folks who are going through this portion of their journey? The first thing that comes to mind is, is I guess, um, trying not to bring on a sense of judgment because I feel, and I use judgment loosely because I can't really think of a better word for it, <laughs> but we tend to, you know, dictate whether some actions are right or wrong or um, if something should be done or shouldn't be done. And a lot of it just comes down to personal choice because what I might feel that I need or want from someone might not be what another person might need or want. So it really comes down to um, 
I think for me, recognising that relationships in themselves are going to naturally trigger us in ways as life progresses. Um, but it's really what we do with that trigger. And you can grow from it um, if, I guess, that's where those roads lie to, um, or it can cause a real breakdown. And um, I think either way, uh, there's growth in that as well. There's lessons that you learn of that's what I need for myself. That's what I want for myself. So now Max, part of being able to communicate your needs is understanding your needs. Do you have any yeah. recommendations about what you were able to do so that you were in tune with what your needs were so that you could properly communicate them to your partner and to your parents mm -hmm. and other people in your life? Because it's hard to advocate for yourself if you don't understand don't know. what your needs I, are. I think I have quite a... Um, close relationship with my body I would say um, I feel emotions in my body so I think I've always kind of had that relationship uh, but when I was starting to really get sick my body kind of no longer became this safe place where I would um, sink into and, and um, harbor in on um, but one thing I've been doing actually within the last six months and I know this sounds really drastic <laughs> but sometimes I put on a timer every hour or two and it's just to ask myself, what does my body need from me? And it's not to say, oh, okay, I have to give my body what it reads right now. But often sometimes it's, oh, my body wants water, so I'll take a sip. Um, but it's just an exercise, I guess, for me to, I know that sounds really kooky, but. <laughs> no, I don't think it's kooky at all. I, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a thing for me just to check in because I think often the times we don't understand what we need because we're not asking ourselves what we need. And um, a lot of people that have gone through this Lyme disease journey, you know, we go to doctors expecting that they know what we need um, when we ourselves are actually not tuning into our body. And the more I talk to people with, you know, chronic illness, chronic Lyme and Lyme in general, um, most of us have the most in tune, amazing skills um, into their body and it become it comes from that place of having to advocate for yourself and having to tune into what your body is needing what feels good what doesn't feel good what's heading you in that path of healing and what isn't so i again i i think this is brilliant despite your description of it being kooky i think it's brilliant so one of the things you've done in constructing your um your healing plan is that you've literally scheduled time with yourself yeah. to determine how you feel so that you understand in part what you need to do for yourself and in part what you need to articulate to other people so they mm -hmm. understand what your needs are. Yeah. And then it goes back to the idea of not having judgment as well, because then I would say, okay, my body needs this, but there was no pressure for me to give that to my body. It was just more of an exercise of just reconnecting. Cause I feel like when you have, um, sickness and you know debilitating symptoms pain in general there's this disconnect between all your um you know your mind and your body and your your social side and your uh, mental everything just gets really disconnected because you really just go into this sort of survival mode um and things don't feel the same so it was I guess for me it was a way to kind of try and repair those um exist like those existing roads that are there but they're a bit rocky at the moment so it was kind of <laughs> Let's go over it again, you know? Max, that is brilliant. I have to tell <laughs> you, that's brilliant. 
And as much as I'd love to spend more time with this, uh, you know, I, 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 I want to move forward on your journey and, and I, I want to give Matt an opportunity to talk with you because he will be get really mad with me if I don't <laughs> ultimately give him a chance to, That's right, to Rich. explore some of this. So, so Max, let's, let's, let's talk about your, let's talk about your journey from Singapore back to Australia because your, your, your symptoms are developing. The doctors mm-hmm. in Singapore are not really um, helping you to treat your symptoms. So talk to us about how your symptoms developed to the point where you are no longer able to stay in Singapore and you had to come home to Australia. Yeah. It got to the point where I was just, I was struggling to even just get up in, and our, our apartment was a shoebox. Like we could have cleaned that thing in two minutes. It was tiny. Um, and it was, it was the point when I knew I was really struggling and, um, my bosses at work pulled me aside and they said, Max, you don't look well. You know, we can tell you're struggling. I, and back then, actually, I think I knew that there was something seriously going on. And I, I had this just intuitive sense, I guess, um, that I wasn't going to be able to work for a while. Um, and I was trying to work for as long as I could because I knew I might not be able to, to go back. And I guess part of that was holding on to that period of my life that, you know, was my great adventure of finally branching out by myself, moving away. And I was really holding on to that. Um, but when I physically just couldn't even really get to work anymore, that was the real turning point. Um, and it actually was a real blessing in disguise, the timing, because it was just before COVID-19 really started happening. So it was really a good thing I came back when I did. Uh, but I have this vivid, vivid memory of looking online on how to book a wheelchair at the airport because I was traveling back by myself before my partner. And I remember just looking online, and I was like, how, how is this happening? Because six months ago, I would never have even dreamed of that. <laughs> so talk to us about the emotional impact of now having to give up your independence, this newly developed independence where you're now venturing out on your own, you're getting your first job, you're living independently with a partner, and now you have to now accept that uh, you're not capable of doing that and you now have to go home and live with your parents. Talk to us about how that caused you to feel emotionally. I was very sad. I knew part of me that I, it just had to be done because it was just getting to the point physically. Um, but emotionally, I was quite torn up about it. I kept going back and forth, trying to, I guess, figure out a way to hold on to it. Um, but I do think in a weird way, all the nomadic lifestyles of my um, bring, upbringing when I was younger, I think that kind of helped me in that respect because... Um, I don't know I liken it to pebble stone walking with heels like you've kind of got to find a little um, you know step in your foot and you've got to find that balance so I guess I saw it as another one of those I'm like oh okay it's a bit unsteady again but I'll, I'll find my balance somehow I, I really took it on um, very quickly as just this is another chapter in my life and this is another journey and I was saying within a month already, I was saying back then, I didn't even have a proper Lyme disease diagnosis, but I just knew in my body, I was already saying, this is going to make me a better person, which I think is looking back, I don't even know how that came out. But I think anything that had happened previously in my life had already kind of prepared me for that. So Max, it's my understanding that you were able to find a Lyme literate doctor pretty quickly when you arrived back to Australia. So talk to us about 
your, your flight back to Australia, and then the events that developed from when you had arrived back to Australia to uh, your first visit with a Lyme literate doctor. Yeah, so I arrived back in Australia at around 2 a.m. and my appointment with my Lyme literate doctor was for about 11 a.m. So I really literally got off the plane, um, came back to my parents' house, they picked me up from the airport, I took a shower, had a nap, and then I was off to see this doctor. Um, I had booked him, uh, actually my friend had booked him in for me, my friend who um, had Lyme disease, she booked him in for me. So she is really um, a godsend in how I even found him because he's one of the only doctors in the whole of Australia in general who really openly treats Lyme disease and co-infections. So I was really, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed for that. Well, talk to us about the communication you had with the friend who had Lyme disease, because we know that she had her Lyme disease journey before you had yours. She had mm -hmm. come to the U.S. before you did. She had gotten sick before you did. You changed yeah. your behavior, but still got sick. When did you reconnect with her about your Lyme disease journey while you were in Singapore? I have a vivid memory of work, walking home from the doctor, and the doctor was only less than a three minute walk from my apartment in Singapore. And I was chatting to her on WhatsApp and I said to her, I can't walk home. Like, I don't think I can make it. I think I have to call my partner to come help me. And she wrote back, you have Lyme. And I remember looking at it and I just was speech. I, I guess I think part of me already knew because I knew that type of fatigue was not normal. My body was really just shutting down. Um, but hearing that, from a person who has Lyme is pretty big. <laughs> and how long after you had that interaction with her where she helped you to self-diagnose with Lyme disease, did you come back to Australia? So that was in August. Oh, that was, no, that was in July. I came home um, November. So even after she said that, she kind of went back and forth a bit. She's like, oh, maybe you don't though. Maybe you do and maybe you don't. And then... I, I started really advocating for getting tested. Um, I went to the doctors there and I said, can you run a Lyme disease test for me? And they said, oh, we don't do that here. We can do it through the US, but it's, I think it was a thousand dollars or something. And I said, oh, and your insurance doesn't cover it. So I thought, okay, how can I get away around this? So I started testing for co-infections. Um, and this was a, just after the month of doxycycline after um, I came back in August. And those were coming back highly positive. So that's when I kind of knew um, there was something going on and it was most likely Lyme. Um, so within that, it was really just, um, I guess, those milestones of figuring out, okay, yes, I'm not going crazy. There is something going on. Um, and then coming back in November. So let's talk about that internal struggle that you were going through at that time. You were told by a a friend that she believed you had Lyme disease, you started to test yourself and you started to discover that there were co-infections. You were getting sicker and sicker, depersonalization to the point where you couldn't get off of a three minute train ride for over an hour. Yet you stay in Singapore and you don't get more extensive treatment. What was yeah. the conflict that was going on in your mind between the, the young woman who wanted to retain her independence and continue to live this independent life and this young woman who is getting sicker and sicker knowing mm -hmm. that she probably had Lyme disease? 
the conflict was maybe I'm not sick. Maybe the doctors here are right. Maybe it is just stress. Maybe, maybe I am pregnant. Maybe, maybe it's all these things, but Lyme disease, maybe I'm being overdramatic. And um, I don't know if it's kind of this, I guess it gets a bit political in the idea of, you know, being a woman um, in a doctor's office. Uh, but we got to the point where my partner said to me, I don't think he said to me, he was actually the one who was probably advocating more for me between us one-on-one um, -on -one than I was in a sense advocating for myself because I still was, I think I was just fighting internally with maybe, maybe it is not that, maybe it is that, maybe, you know, maybe I'm being overdramatic. And when it got to the point where these tests were coming back positive, I even struggled for a while after that because I thought maybe it's not um, that, maybe it is, you know, it was just back and forth, back and forth. Um, and I do have to attribute that as well. Um, and it's something I learned afterwards because I started studying um, the infections that came back positive. So one of the first ones that came back positive was mycoplasma pneumonia. So I bought a book on that and I started reading about that. Um, and then I started learning about life cycles. Um, and that's one thing I think every person in this should do is study if you can, if you can mentally take it in, study what might be going on in your body because it gives you a better understanding of your symptoms. For example, like Bartonella has a life cycle of basically, I think it's 12 to 16 hours or something like that. Um, whereas Lyme has a life cycle of two to four weeks. So that's why your symptoms might come up one week and then not be there the next week and then come up again three weeks later. So once I started to study um, these things that were coming back positive, because I wanted to understand what am I maybe dealing with, then I kind of started to settle in with, I guess, a sort of action plan of how to move forward and how to accept it as well. So let's talk about the different ways your cognitive process of concluding that you had Lyme disease was being undermined during this window on your journey, right? Your mind was telling you, you're being dramatic, you're probably not sick, there's nothing wrong with you. So you, so you had this internal conflict between your cognitive thought processes and your, and your, and your unconscious mind. You had doctors telling you things like, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not testing for anything wrong. We can't test you. You look fine. And then, of course, you had other people in the world telling you that you looked fine and there was nothing wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Yet, despite all of that, you were still being carried from place to place. You were unable to get off the. You were unable to get off the train. You were suffering from difficult, you know, bouts of fatigue. So, yeah. talk to us about how someone like you, who's, who's brilliant and an architect and self-aware, was unable to get past all of these different forces that were undermining your cognitive conclusions? I think because it's not crystal clear. There's no um, obvious, I mean, looking back now, knowing what I know, it is very obvious what I was going through. Um, but when I was in it, I, I couldn't see it as crystal clear I couldn't see it as a line in the sand because I think as it happened it was you get one symptom at this point and then it goes away and then and, and it migrates two weeks right? later 
another one comes in. And um, one of the actual things that really started um, for me to really settle in was I started having these weird um, nerve sensations and that developed into what is chronic nerve pain. Um, and even now, if I go to some doctors, I'm sure they would say, oh, there's actually nothing wrong with you, but I can't deny that I have chronic nerve pain and I've never had that before in my life. So it was when those things started to settle in and weren't so fleeting in that response um, that I, I guess it started to be less muddled. You're now so sick, you have to go home to Australia. You arrive home on the plane. You have your doctor's appointment set up for you in advance with the Lyme literate doctor. Now talk to us about what that experience was like and what the doctor said to you during your first visit. So before I went to see him, he had me answer this massive questionnaire. And I actually answered the questionnaire twice in two colors. So I did it uh, one for a good day and one for a bad day. Um, and he said to me, or he had a, he had like this audio kind of microphone that he was speaking notes into. And I remember he was saying things that I didn't really know at the time. He was saying like Babesia and I was thinking, oh, what's that? So I was making mental notes to go and to study it afterwards. Um, but he quickly had me do testing in Germany with Armin Labs and some testing that could be done in Australia. Um, so after all that testing came back and they were many, many positives, um, that was kind of how we could start formulating a proper treatment plan. Almost immediately though, he had me um, do testing as well for um, allergies because I developed actually by that point new allergies that I'd never had before. I had um, one case where I had two anaphylactic allergic reactions and I've never had allergies in my life before. So. At that point, you know, I think that's when, you know, there's something not right going on. So Max, when you say allergies, did they worsen to the point where you were diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome? Yes. So I walk around with an EpiPen now. Where is it? It's not on me now, but um, it is around here. <laughs> but yeah, it was mast cell activation syndrome and then um, high um, response markers to things like coffee. And I don't, I never even drank coffee before I got sick, but I was suddenly allergic to coffee. Um, so all these types of, I had this huge list, like lettuce. Who's allergic to lettuce? I don't know anyone. <laughs> so did your, did your Lyme literate doctor tell you that as you start to heal and treat the underlying conditions that these allergies will get better? Yes. In theory, they should. Um, for me, I've got a lot of inflammation in my body and I do think it's in part due to how many co-infections there are. Um, so I guess it's just the body's way of trying to, to heal. Um, so it's just basically kind of managing it now, but I do fully believe that one day I'll be fully back to my rock star self and eating lettuce and drinking coffee or whatever it is. <laughs> Who would have thought an allergy to lettuce, right? So talk to us more about all these, these tests that you had done through Armin Labs in Germany and also local tests there in Australia. Mm -hmm. What came back positive? So obviously probably Lyme disease came back positive. We knew you had a couple of co-infections, but give us the laundry list of infections that came back positive. Okay, the list is, one second. This is the brain fog um, testing in. Okay, so I came back with mycoplasma pneumonia, 
chlamydia pneumonia, Coxsackie A, Coxsackie B, Varicivella, uh, Varicivostivirus, Yersinia, Lyme is on there, um, Bartonella, Babesia, and Epstein-Barr virus. So we really, in the States, messed you up bad with that tick bite you got that you didn't <laughs> find, unfortunately. So as Americans, we have to apologize for that. So. I mean, it could have also been from somewhere else. So we, we never, we don't know. <laughs> but thank God you have the only Lyme litter doctor in Perth that you were able to find. And yes, now he needs oh, to be cloned. <laughs> so talk to us more about what this Lyme litter doctor did so once you had all these test results what was the response like okay you need treatment immediately was it was it sort of a all right let's let's figure out a plan and 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 a slow and steady course of action what was your treatment plan after that so the first treatment plan i guess was preparing he did a um a gut test which basically just tested all the levels in my gut and he looked at that and he said this is bang on with anyone with um chronic tick-borne illness he said your levels are crazy so I said okay what can we do about it um so I guess it the foundation of it was a gut healing um protocol for the first six months and I remember him telling me it could be done in three months depending on when you got infected but maybe six so we'll just touch base in three months so we started on that and it was basically the way he explained it to me, which um, I went on to do further research, obviously, on it, the person I am, um, was that the immune system is just the foundation of all healing. So if your gut isn't on board, then nothing's going to be on board. So we did that for six months. So that was elimination diet, um, basically taking out everything that I was reacting to, probiotics, um, supplements. I think at one point I was over 100 pills a day just trying to get all the levels back that were just so super, super low. So the idea was to strengthen your body as a whole with this gut healing protocol, this herbal protocol, mm -hmm. et cetera, for six months. And then after that, I'm assuming you went on to more of a kill protocol to kill the various bacteria, viruses, yes. protozoa, yes. et cetera. So within, um, within the first six months, he started putting me on hutania, which is a herb. I'm sure you got, you call it herb, right? Yes. Herb. What, do you, what, what, what do you guys call it? Herbs. <laughs> I'm sorry. You probably cringe when you hear that. No. Um, but no, it, then it started kind of getting into the antimicrobials. Um, we had to bounce around a few antibiotics at first. I think he didn't want to put me on a heavy antibiotic protocol at first, thinking that maybe I could just bounce back quickly. So, because I had already done a, a, a month of doxy, we tried one. We tried a Roxy. It was called Roxy. Um, that didn't really do anything. Um, and then we started just introducing um, other protocols. My body started responding quite um, quickly to um, the Bartonella protocol, which he put me on. I'm still currently on that. Um, it's, I've actually seen some progress in that now. Currently, I've got Bartonella and Babesia rash all over my body, which I think is fascinating because that's over a year after, um, you know, supposedly starting this treatment before I was um, bitten. So I think it's really fascinating how this all comes about. So Max, I'm sorry to interrupt, but many people reach out to us regularly asking us to describe these types of rashes because they're not sure if they're having rashes associated wow. with these illnesses. So can you describe okay. the, the rashes you have and how you know which rashes are associated with which tick-borne illness? So I got confused at first. I thought um, 
all the rashes I was having was Bartonella simply because I was on a Bartonella protocol. Um, the Bartonella rash for me looks like red stretch marks. And I have gained a little bit of weight, not, not being as mobile, but it definitely is not stretch marks. Um, they come and go. Um, the Babesia rash for me looks like red dots. Um, and it's quite amazing. I wish I could send you um, photos right now. I'll, I'll send them to you later so you can see. Um, when I take my um, essential, so I've got essential oils as part of my Bardanella protocol, my skin will break out in red hot burning rashes on my body. And for me, that's screaming Bardanella. That will go quickly. But then afterwards, sometimes in that place, I'll get these red little like almost freckle dots on my skin. And I've realized that that's actually Babesia. So it sounds like, Max, that the antibiotics were not as effective because you were on them earlier on and the essential oils and possibly the herbal protocols were having the mm -hmm. most success for you during this time. Yeah, what I feel has been a really good combination, at least for me, um, has been the antibiotics with the essential oils. Once I started introducing the essential oils, I feel like it really started getting to the core of these infections way better than any antibiotic could ever get to really. So talk to us about how you use essential oils because we've had various people talk to us about using them in a diffuser, uh, both mm -hmm. and then topically and also so then ingesting them. them. You do, okay. Yeah, I ingest them. The first um, one I started with was cinnamon oil. Cinnamon oil, I'll say this to anyone, be careful because oh my gosh, this thing makes me hurt bad. If I like, if I, I have to consistently take it or ice, it's, a nightmare to start it again <laughs> but that's when I really knew that I was hitting something on the head when I really started getting those reactions um, so the way I take cinnamon oil is of course organic cinnamon oil I've sourced it within Australia um, I so the way I used to take it before was I would put it in um, two, 20 milligrams of coconut or extra virgin oil and I would just drink it mid-meal, but I really struggled with that. And it's just not very nice tasting for me. So you would mix, so the, I do it now. You would mix the oil with the cinnamon, the, the, the coconut oil with the cinnamon oil and you yes. would just drink it and essentially. I would drink it. Okay. But it's a hot oil. So it's really hot. I, I find it's not a nice oil to drink. So what I do now is I put it in veggie caps. I just drop it in. I've become very expert at it. Um, and I just ingest that as I eat food. Um, I think I take, I take five drops in the morning and five drops at night, but I seriously, if I took like the beginning of it, I took one drop, I was herxing so badly. So really go slow with it just in case it's amazing. <laughs> so Max, the cinnamon oil, is that for, is that just specifically for one Babesia or Bartonella or Lyme, or is that a multi-purpose essential see, oil? I see both Babesia and um, Bartonella rash come out from it. I'll send you the photos after of what comes out for me. It happens all on my joints as well, which is really interesting. My joints and my lymphatic system. So I always imagine that's why they're hiding and they're just being blasted. But um, yeah, I'll show you. It's really cool. If you're comfortable, we'd like to share those photos uh, yeah. and link them to this podcast in the show notes so people yes. listening can look in the show notes yes. and open up that link to view these photos to see exactly what you're talking about. The, you know, Especially if they think they may be having similar rashes associated to yeah. Babesia and Bartonella as well. Yep. So now you also mentioned the herbal protocol. So the antibiotics and the essential oils together, that combination really is to help you start to herx and start to really start to feel better after the herxing. 
but you did yeah. also mention the herbs. Were there any herbs that you found to be particularly useful or helpful in your healing journey? I think the, actually the biggest point for me I'd make for that is what hasn't been useful. Um, and I think it must be so different for everyone. I was taking, for example, one of them I was taking was ashwagandha and my pain levels were through the roof when I was taking that. So I did more research on that and then I realized, oh, it's a nightshade. So it's high in histamines. And of course, because I have all this mast cell activation and all this inflammation going on, it was making that worse. So. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to repeat that. So ashwagandha is a nightshade, which we know is, Mm -hmm. is generates high inflammation, like the nightshade vegetables that we hear about so often in the Lyme community. So if somebody's very sensitive to inflammation and nitrate vegetables, they should be cautious of ashwagandha and it may actually make their pain worse because I personally take ashwagandha and it helps me significantly just with sleep Mm -hmm. and in general. So I think it's an important point. It'd bring my pain to a 10. Like I would not be able to sleep at night. Um, That, and also I've had to kind of play around with Japanese knotweed and I looked into that and it's also a nightshade. So I think it's, it's, um, I do this weird test with uh, herbs. I'm saying herbs now, herbs. No, say um, herbs, say, say it the way you want, say it your natural way. <laughs> Don't change do your language for us. <laughs> <laughs> I actually test it and I see how my body reacts to it. I know this also sounds a bit creaky, but no. um, sometimes I'm just finding that my body's craving a certain, um, a certain type of herb. Um, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, my body's craving heart leaf. It's craving heart hutania. And then I'll take it. And it's almost like my body has, it's horrible tasting, but it's like my body has a sense of relief as soon as it's taken it. So I feel like a lot of it, if you can, is just tap into what your body's feeling good on and what it's not feeling good on. So two, two follow-up questions on that one. The first part you said is that you actually test the herbs on you to see if they're going to have a positive effect. So how do you do that? Are you just, are you just putting some herbs on your tongue, on your skin? Like, how do you, how do you test I, these herbs? I drink it. Yeah. I'll just take a, a swig. <laughs> so I have to admit, I told Rich this yesterday and I'm, I'm um, going to shamefully admit this again on the podcast live here that I actually took um, an herbal protocol and, and it was in a capsule, which would have been far better to take, but I twisted it open and put half the capsule on my tongue. And of course I had a horrible, horrible aftertaste and bitter taste on my tongue for probably several hours. So um, oh, I think that's, that's probably cautionary for certain herbs. It may have that sort of aftertaste, They're but really bad. Yeah. But I have to admit that the, the effects of the herbs actually were very positive. So now of course I'm not going to put them on my tongue. I'm just going to take them in the capsules. They come in the right mm-hmm. way I should be doing them. So I think your testing method though is very good for somebody who, who is, or is concerned about either allergies or sensitivities or, personalized reactions to various herbs to sort of spot test it by just taking a little bit of the herb and swigging it with water to see if they have a reaction. And yeah. if not, then maybe increase the, the volume or the dosage of that herb to see if they have a positive yeah. effect. Is that sort of what you're, yeah. you're suggesting? Yes. And another tip, if you are struggling with taste, is some people mix it with pomegranate juice. I, I'm a bit of a weird person. I just drink it. But um, some people that I've heard of really like the pomegranate juice as well. So and you don't have a, a nasty aftertaste for hours after doing that? I'm maybe just a bit nasty myself. I'm from an island, so we're used to eating like fish heads and <laughs> stuff like that. So maybe it's just me, but I feel like it's doing something more if it tastes bad, you know? Yeah, I hear that. So the other, the other <laughs> follow-up question to this is, how do you know, and this is probably a hard question to answer, but you basically said like, I'll wake up in the morning and know I need this herb. 
how have you trained your body to learn which herbs you need based on your symptoms and just your general feelings of, of, you know, waking up in the morning? Mm -hmm. For me, it's been, I guess it's a sense of mindfulness. I use that in big, uh, <laughs> big uh, quotation marks. Um, Cause I know that can be really hard for me. Mindful, like the mindfulness as a whole has been hard since I got sick because um the idea of mindfulness is really that your body is a safe place that you can uh, embrace. And if you're not feeling well, or if there's, I guess, some uh, dis-ease in your body, that's not going to be a nice place that you want to tap into. Um, but I guess just little ways. For me, it's um, tension in the shoulders. I know that sounds, I guess, it's probably diff different for everyone, but it's tension in the shoulders. Um, in the chest I'll feel just some sort of relief and it's just like really subtle cues um, I think as people we are very physical creatures you know we've learned how to verbally communicate but most of what our um, I guess elementary communication styles are all physical so it's I guess it's tuning into those really small um, changes in your body so, even the jaw just yes tightness this is, in the jaw. This is you know, really powerful and I'm sorry, Matthew, but you, it sounds like you're thinking that you're sort of an alien alone with this, but I can tell you, I know exactly what you mean when you say your shoulders are tense, your chest is tense, your jaw's clenched. So you're recognizing Even various, your, yeah. yes, your fist, right? So you're recognizing yeah. these various things that are going on physically with you. And then you're knowing which herbs will help them based on past experiences, yeah. right? And this is very good information to help people that are listening. So if you could just give us a couple of examples. So, you know, for what physical symptoms, so I'll give you a specific for your, your um, jaw clenching, for example, mm -hmm. which herbs do you take to help the jaw clenching? For, for the moment, at least I do find it changes. Uh, for the moment, my body's been craving hutania. Like I'll wake up in the night and I'm like, I need some hutania. So I'm just gravitating towards that because I feel like, I feel like in a, in a weird way, you know, our body's giving us all these signals. And if we're denying it sometimes and saying, oh, maybe it doesn't need that. I mean, our bodies are working so hard to heal and to, you know, get us through the day sometimes or even just minute by minute. And I feel like if we aren't even rewarding those little bits of um, requests or desire, how disheartening would that be for our body? You know, it's, it's almost like we want to we wanna give it what, you know, it's asking for so it if is, we can. It is really super common for people with chronic Lyme to hold tension because we are sick, we are stressed, and it's very difficult to try to let that tension go. So if we are having tension in our shoulders and our in our necks and our jaws and our in our wrists, etc., um, the the herb you just described, can you spell it for our, our listeners so they can potentially research it yes. and look into that as an it as an option for themselves? Called... Okay, I might be butchering the spelling. Um, H O U double T Y N I A. I think it's also called heart leaf. Heart leaf. It is an antimicrobial. Okay. Oh, I see. Yep. If you just Google heart leaf, there's a lot of stuff out on the internet here for yeah. heart leaf. Okay, perfect. So if people it tastes are really bad, so you're going to love that one. But <laughs> so maybe they should keep that in the capsule so they don't have to yeah. keep that on their mouth, right? They should take the it shortcut. Is, it is really powerful. Um, I've heard of some people that, because um, in Australia, we, gen we tend to take it as um, tinctures, as liquid. I've heard of some people that take one drop in a full glass of water and can barely get that glass of water down when they first take it. So it is really powerful. 
but it does help you significantly with your symptoms. So although it's very it nasty tasting, the yes. benefit for your symptoms far outweighs the yes. nastiness of the taste. And there's I imagine. a lot of correlation that I've seen so far, and I'm testing this out now with Heartleaf and Cedocuda. Um, there's correlations for it for Babesia, for Bartonella. So I'm going to see if it's a good combo. <laughs> so this is an antimicrobial. And just for everybody listening, it's H-R-U-T-T-Y-N-I-A and then Heartleaf, H-E-A-R-T-L-E-A-F. Now, what was the other herb you mentioned? I'm sorry, can you, can you say Cida that one again? Acuda. S-I-D-A. And then it's like a space, A-C-U-T-A. And these two herbs complement each other very well, you're saying, yes. for Babesia yes. and- Yes, especially uh, for, from what I've seen, for um, Babesia and Bartonella. And it looks like, as you mentioned, yeah. this, this comes in a, uh, a tincture form as well, in addition to a yes. powder form. And if you look at where Cedar Okuda grows, it grows in the middle of nowhere where there's like no water. It's, I mean, if, <laughs> if that herb had to embody what people go through with Lyme disease, it's, it's got it covered. <laughs> it's amazing where it grows. So it's very symbolic as well, it looks like. so. Very symbolic. <laughs> so in addition to the herbs, in addition to the antibiotics, and in addition to the essential oils, I'm sorry, are there any other essential oils aside from, from cinnamon oil that, that you find have helped you significantly in your journey that you can recommend to others? Yes. So the other ones I would highly recommend that I've seen um, progress with for me um, is you, you're going to cringe again at the pronunciation. Oregano. I think let's call it oregano. Oh, oh, oregano. We call it oregano. It's okay. <laughs> uh, oregano, clove, and thyme. So I take it in a capsule, actually, um, from a brand called Metagenics, and it's called Bactrex. That thing is amazing. It's honestly changed my life. I, I see myself taking that for life, honestly. We've heard of Metagenics. So talk to us. It's, it's oregano, clove, and what was the other one? It's oregano, clove, and thyme. And there's thyme. another one in there. It's like a, it's a funny, another one I can't pronounce. I won't try, but it's, okay. I feel like this is one of the products that I'll be on for the rest of my life. Just to, even when I'm better, I'll just keep on it just to keep myself there. So talk to us about why. So you mentioned the other two herbs are beneficial from an antimicrobial standpoint. So they're mm -hmm. killing the Babesia and the Bartonella, and they're also having a positive impact on symptom relief. What is the oregano, yeah. clove, and thyme doing for you that's making you say you want to be on it for life? Similar, um, similar effects to just the antimicrobial nature, but it's got an amazing um, effect on the gut as well. I've been on a heavy antibiotic protocol and I've gone and tested my gut and all my levels. And this is from another doctor. And he said to me, to be honest, if I was looking at your test results, I can't tell that you're on all this medication that you say you're on. And he's like, the only thing I can pinpoint it on is all these kind of um not run-of-the-mill products like the cinnamon or the Bactrex. And I feel I feel it in my system as well. If I don't take it, I know I can sense a difference in my body. So before I go on to the next question, I just want to make sure I didn't miss any. Are there any other herbs or essential oils that have been game changers for you that you can recommend to, the, to our listeners? Those would be the main ones so far. Well, you've so definitely far. given us a whole bunch of thank you for that. That was just a ton of great information. And I also noticed that you talked about IV infusions and infrared saunas. So were those yes. just sort of minor uh, treatment or, or therapies or were those really important in your, in your healing journey as well? Um, the IVs have really helped my fatigue. Um, I had to be careful because I've got a mild G6VD deficiency. So I have to be careful with vitamin C, 
But um, for fatigue wise, I notice a big difference every time I get high dose magnesium, high dose zinc, and then I get all the B12 shots, all the B vitamins. I really notice a difference with my fatigue. It's a lot better and more manageable after I get those infusions. So these are all I vitamin do, infusions, right? Uh, yeah, I do hex a little bit, but I believe that's from the vitamin C. Okay. And I just want for everybody listening, they did, and I'm sure just like myself, the G6PD deficiency, which we've never talked about on this podcast ever before in 175 episodes, we're going to get to in a second. <laughs> but um, so in addition to the IV infusions, the infrared sauna probably helps you, I'm assuming with detox and okay. just sort of cleansing yeah. the toxins out of your body and, and feeling yeah. a little bit better afterwards. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, that's correct. My, my dad's actually amazing. Um, I've got an infrared sauna outside of my room. <laughs> So my dad, because he saw me going to, um, in Australia, I don't know what the prices are in America, but they're quite expensive. My dad sourced one from China and it came, I think, for under $1,500. And that bad boy just sits out there and it's been a, it's the best present I've ever had. <laughs> now, have you ever had any, have you ever had any adverse effects from it? Because some people that have heat intolerances, et cetera, tell us that they just are very slow in the sauna. Otherwise they have really bad herxes and really bad reactions to it. What was your experience with the sauna the first time you went in? I was straight in there at 60 degrees Celsius and I was loving it. I think because a lot of my symptoms are pain-based, I think it is a good distraction for me and it generally is um, soothing. I do notice that I'm having more issues since I'm having more issues with nausea that I do struggle to stay in the infrared sauna. Um, so I just do what I can tolerate when I can, because I feel like even just a little bit is helping in some way for detoxing. So it all comes back to really listening to your body. When you start to feel like this is not having a good impact, you get out and yeah. on a daily basis, you're just constantly listening to your body and you're having those sort of self-assessment you know, meetings with yourself every day to see what your body needs, which is really powerful. It's not, it's not crazy at all. I think it's something everybody should do, including myself. So the final thing I want to ask before we get onto that, that deficiency is you also mentioned CBD oil. So what role did that play in, in your healing journey? That came in when I started having seizures. Um, I started having seizures as part of a Herx reaction to antibiotics. And also when I started the essential oils, um, I started herxing with that and seizures came into play then. Um, so the CBD was kind of just to try and calm down my neuro symptoms. Um, they have to some degree, I wouldn't say fully, um, and they've helped to some degree for my nerve pain as well. With the nerve pain, I do notice it's very, um, very based on my inflammation levels. So when the inflammation levels are higher, the nerve pain's a lot higher. Um, I learned that the hard way because I ran out of my <laughs> some medications a few weeks ago and I was like, oh, okay, this is good to know. Um, but the CBD oils helped with that. It hasn't um, taken it away completely, but I do feel like it is a good player in the team that I have. So Max, you just hit on something very powerful, I think, that you said when you when you are herxing, which means you're really having an excess die-off and your body's having this sort of cytokine storm of inflammation, that that actually triggers your seizures. So I think that's an important lesson for our listeners that if they are treating too aggressively and they're having too much die-off and too much herxing, that can lead to a you know overwhelming mm -hmm. system-wide inflammation, which leads to, I think, as you described, the nerve pain, which can lead to seizures. Is that what you experienced in, in your personal yes. journey? Yeah, so I stopped having seizures for a while. And then I think last month I had two days where I had probably over 12 seizures. 
Um, so then that was a good indication for me, okay, I've got too much going on in my system. I need to detox. So it was um, infrared saunas, drinking my body weight in water, um, magnesium salt baths, and just trying to get whatever I could. So to, you know. it sounds like you want to back off the antimicrobials and the kill part of your protocol. And then you want to boost up the detox part of your protocol to flood all these yeah. toxins out of your body to decrease yeah. the inflammation, to stop the seizures, which were really the root cause of your seizures in that case, it sounds mm-hmm. like. Yeah. And it's a fine balance too, because for me, if I back off too much on the antimicrobials, when I introduce them again, I hurts even more because I think there's still quite a, um, a high pathogen load for some of those infections. So it's, it's a balance of, I guess, like a, a manual car driving, a little bit of clutch, a bit of acceleration. <laughs> So talk to us about seizures in general, because I I had seizures in my Lyme journey as well. And thank God I haven't had them in many, many years, but I had seizures of all different types when I was really sick. And from, from other podcast guests, we've seen that some people have had severe grand mal seizures. Other have had Mm -hmm. um, minor seizures, but there were smaller seizures, but they had them much more frequently throughout the day. So I think seizures can present in many different ways and it's hard to identify, you know, what can be a seizure, what cannot be a seizure. I mean, you know, paralysis and shaking of the legs is is a minor seizure, right? But people sometimes just think that they're having, you know, maybe other, other issues. So talk to us about the different types of seizures you have and how you know that they're, they're, maybe there are warning signs that are coming on. Yeah, the only type of seizure I'll say that I've been fully aware of are simple partial seizures, and they always affect so far outside of my body, which I find really interesting. Um, So it'll be my right hand, my right foot, my right leg, my right arm. Um, I generally will have a sense of, uh, I guess it's what they call an aura, something's going on, like something's not right, I feel weird. Um, I kind of have a, a, a sense that I'm in a dream sometimes. Um, and then usually this big surge of emotions at some point as well. Uh, but it's it, it's funny because at first I didn't know quite know what they were, but it was, I guess, a process of um, looking at the patterns of what was going on and then putting it together and saying, okay, there is something going on here. Now for you, is there, is there, is the right side of your body shaking or twitching? Are, are there other are visual shaking symptoms? And twitching, yeah. My, both eyes as well will um, be affected. And I didn't understand why. And then I looked up um, parts of the brain and apparently the eyes, if I'm not mistaken, um, they're controlled by a part on the left side of the brain or lower side, which is also where the right side of the brain, a uh, right side of the body is connected to. So that made me feel less crazy. <laughs> and you're definitely not crazy. And I'm sure you know that now, but mine were all left side of the body base, which I thought was so strange as well. Really? But there are so many people we've interviewed that have had, you know, right-sided or left-sided, basically centered symptoms for their, for their chronic Lyme disease. And one of the things My that I, I, I just like relaxed a bit, cause it felt, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it felt it's, nice it's, to, I mean, not nice to hear, but um, I guess in a, in a, in a weird way, nice to hear that I'm not alone in that. For sure. And I tell you, I mean, I, I believe, you know, and, and just a theory of mine that the tick maybe bit me on the left side of my body. And that's why, you know, I'm having that mm-hmm. reaction on my left side, or there's gotta yeah. be some sort of connection. Why yours is your right side. Mine is my left yes. side and other people, it just varies, right? Right side, left side. But most yeah. of the people that, that recall their tick bite and have one side of, you know, body pain, seizures, et cetera, they've all been bitten on the side where their, where their pain is. So that's been a connection that we've noticed here with, with all of our guests. Um, 
But another observation that, that we're making here is that when you had that depersonalization on the train where you sort of had that, like, you know, you just, you're, you couldn't remember anything of those cognitive problems. You sort of felt disconnected. Do you think that that was actually maybe a, a mini seizure at that point that maybe some people that are experiencing depersonalization are really in fact experiencing minor seizures and not even knowing it? Yes. I'll even go further than that. And I say, even um, if someone's having a lot of migraines, I start to wonder sometimes because I've, I've had daily migraines at one point for some months. And I thought, is this maybe a type of mini seizure in itself? I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of things to uncover with the neurological side of these things. And in addition to the CBD oil, which definitely helps, but doesn't totally eliminate your seizures during these herxes, is there any other medicines or tools or herbals that your doctor has given you to put in your seizure toolbox to help when they come on? Um, those have been the main, the main um, tools, I guess. Um, I do take antihistamines every day. So I take A1 and A2 type antihistamines every morning. If I even just miss one of them, I notice a big difference. So let's talk more about what I've been wanting to talk about for this entire interview and did, but everything you've been giving us has been so powerful. I've been uh, delaying this is your G6PD deficiency. So you yes. noted that that ozone therapy and glutathione are very difficult for you to process because you have this G6PD genetic deficiency. So can you talk to us more yeah. about what that is and how you even knew you had it? It's uh, basically a deficient, just a deficiency. That means I don't have enough or mine's okay. That helps me with my red. And that enzyme is called basically GCPD. Um, the only reason I know I have it is I've got a twin brother and it runs predominantly in males um, with Chinese or African backgrounds. So my brother had been tested from birth in Singapore. He knew he had it. In males, it's really harsh. Um, it affects diet, lifestyle, everything like that. They really have to manage it. Um, but I was never tested because I was female and it was just assumed I didn't have it. Uh, but one doctor I was seeing here decided to test me for it just in case. That was after I got sick. Um, and it came back positive for a mild spectrum of it on the male scale. So um, that's been really helpful in knowing because I don't want to obviously do things like ozone or glutathione if obviously my body can't break it down properly properly and that relates to um vitamin c as well or things like methylene blue which i don't know if you guys have heard of but people are using that now for bardanella yes so uh, max in the beginning you, you were a little cut off Do you mind repeating just the first part you said about just when you described what it was because it was a little bit of static in the background i apologize oh, sorry it's uh basically a deficiency um, that means I don't have enough because mine's only mild of an enzyme called G6PD and it basically just helps with red blood cells. Gotcha thank you. So it helps produce them, break them down, um, protect them as well. So now this has been a two-year journey I believe since you got diagnosed for so the last two years that yeah. you've been treating and you're still on treatment correct? Yes yes so I've been so on treatment for just over a year. But I got bitten supposedly two years ago. Gotcha. So yeah. talk to us about some of the, the progress you've made. So from treating for the last year, give us an example of, um, you know, how bad you were. Highlight another really, really low moment in your health. And then give us an example of some progress you've made today and things you can do today that you weren't able to do a year ago. Um, not being able to hold my own glass of water. 
and having that slip through my fingers or dropping it on the floor or even holding my knife and fork at dinner, just the fatigue was so, so bad. Um, and I can do that now <laughs> pretty consistently. That's a plus. So is there any other, anything else you can do today? Are you able to maybe get outside a little bit, go for gentle walks, things like that, that you couldn't have done maybe a year ago? Yes, those are coming back. They coming back slowly, but definitely are coming back. Um, lately, I'm just struggling with really high nausea. And I think that's just dire from the Bardinella Babesia. But um, the fatigue has probably been the area where I've seen most progress in. And the speech, I'm not stuttering as much anymore or, you know, word recall. So that's pretty good. So you don't have to fake an American accent anymore to pretend like that's the cause of your, your speech problems. I, <laughs> it might still come out because I did go to an American high school. So <laughs> if it doesn't, I'm not mocking you. It's just a... No, this is, you've been awesome. So I just want to highlight though, because we have just this week alone and it's very heartbreaking to hear. So for everybody who's listening, if anybody's out there who thinks they can't get better, you're bed bound or you're very limited physically, emotionally, and you feel like there's no hope that Max and everybody else we've interviewed are just, just perfect examples and inspirations that you can get better. You need to be patient. You need to keep fighting. Yeah. You, need to, you need to keep treating and you have to focus on the little wins because Max, you've made some great progress. You're going to continue to make progress. And I know, and Rich knows that you are going to enter remission because you're going to keep fighting until you get there and you're going to keep helping people in this community. So we want to thank you for that. And my final question before I hand this back over to Rich is just give us a percentage. I mean, you know, you clearly you've been on this interview. We've been talking for several hours, including the, the offline chat, but give us an assessment of how much you feel you've regained your health percentage wise. This is always a hard question and people say it's a trick question and they don't like answering it, but I'm curious to see what you're going to say to this question. Yeah, I guess you say it's a trick trick question because it's always a bit up and down. I would say overall 25 to maybe 30% on a good day physically. I would say emotionally, like in terms of um, psychological strength, it's 200 plus. I feel like I'm on another wavelength and I've like, I could never have been on this wavelength that I am now on. That's a perfect transition to what we need to talk about now, which is your transition and, 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 and your transformation. So talk to us about um, how this journey has been beautiful and what you've learned about yourself on this journey. I've learned so many things, um, just even in terms of my life goals, you know, before we were talking about my background, my background was architecture and I thought that's what I was going to do for my whole life. That's kind of gone out the window because I, I think my priorities have changed completely and I've had to ask myself what I want in my life and what I need and um, what can allow me to do those things and that might not be architecture and that's okay I probably still always do it because I love it um, but I guess it's opening myself up to life and what it will bring me um, one of the amazing things I think about is that um, I'm not a stranger anymore to the things I've been experiencing. And I know that uh, it can be taken in a dark way, but I think there's a beauty to it that, you know, you're not a stranger anymore to things like chronic nerve pain. You're not a stranger to debilitating fatigue, uh, nausea, neurological issues, you know, seizures, joint pain, brain swelling. Um, you're not a stranger to the idea, idea that you can't trust your body. And I know that sounds really heavy to 
think about, but it, there's a beauty to it because you can actually start relating to other people in ways that you never thought you could. And you start relating to yourself in ways that you never thought you could as well. Because I always thought I was, um, I guess, in essence, a strong person, but I now I really know. <laughs> I think there's um, the only person that really can get you through this situation is yourself and it's learning to love yourself learning to speak differently to yourself learning how to be kinder and make things easier for yourself I think before I was someone who would put rocks in my backpack if I was working out because it would make me stronger uh, I've had to kind of relearn things in that sense of okay let's take the rocks out let's take the backpack off let's just skip the whole workout and you know what can we do um, to make this easier for myself, what can I do to continue to heal? So we spoke a lot about your self-awareness and your sort of introduction to you. As a young person, you sort of had this very healthy, vibrant uh, experience, and you just took all of that for granted. And now we have a young woman who very much understands who she is. We under You understand how um, you feel, you understand why you feel, you're able to set goals. Talk about how your, the suffering that you went through on this Lyme disease journey was the only way that you believe you could have learned all of this about yourself. That's a great question. I think when you go through this type of suffering, you'll, you encounter fears that you didn't have before. Um, one of the biggest fears for me is living like this forever then um at, you know at, it sounds horrible to say but I, I'm more afraid of living like this forever than I am dying from it but there's also a strength in that of okay so I'm going to choose life I'm going to choose healing and um you know a lot of people say speak positive and I kind of have um I've had days where, you know, someone said think positively. I didn't like the word positive. So I had to kind of go back. Um, and I think maybe it's something that some people have to do even before their um, foundations of, okay, how do we heal the gut? Sometimes you have to go all the way back and say, do I want to live? Do I want to choose life? Do I want to choose healing? And kind of make that pack with yourself and go back. And if you have to just reconfirm that with yourself, because you know, your body's working so hard for you and it's, it's wanting to heal. And we have to align ourselves with that as well. So talk to us about how the new relationship that you have with yourself and the new understanding that you've developed with yourself has now allowed you to have better relationships with the other people in your life. I think it's a great eye opener that firstly, no one really knows what's going on. <laughs> Because even now, you know, I can see someone and they have said to me, Max, I have no idea. I would have no idea that you're unwell right now or that this is, you know, that if you were to rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, that you're even rating it at this level. I think it's a great eye opener that um, we never really know what the other person is going through. Um, it's a great eye opener as well for surrounding yourself with people who make you feel good I think that's one thing that's really important is it can be really easy to slip into negative or toxic I call it vulture speak um, vulture speak environments um, even sometimes that's the news 
there's been periods of times where I can't even have the news playing because um, there's too much going on for me to even take in. Um, so socially as well, that goes into that of um, bringing a side of yourself that can be open, but that can also protect yourself if you need to. Um, so I kind of have this rule where if there's been one kind of negative thing, I replace it with three positive things. And um, that can be in the Lyme community as well, because it can be really overwhelming for someone who's been newly diagnosed and they're looking at all this information and thinking, um, will I ever get better? How do I um, start into this? How do I start treatment? And it can be really scary and really toxic in that respect as well. So Max, it sounds to me like you, of course, like everyone else had this instinct to protect yourself physically, but you had to learn how to protect your mind and you had to learn how to protect your emotions and you had to learn how to protect yourself socially and that it was important for you to learn how to protect yourself in all of those ways in order to be healthy in whatever environment you found yourself in. Yeah, because when you enter this situation, there's things now that if someone said to me, I would never, have, you know, there's things that we take for granted. Like if someone says, I hope you feel better or I hope you feel better soon. Those are little things that we've said our whole lives, but suddenly you say that to someone who's chronically ill and they might not take that in a way that is comforting. They might take that as um, something that makes them feel isolated because they feel misunderstood. So it's all these little kind of nuances of, um, being sensitive to yourself as well of what do I need right now and if that's not being provided for that's okay because you can actually give it to yourself on some level. Talk to us about how you now feel paid to call uh, to how you feel called to pay forward um, the experience that you had with your friend who had Lyme disease, because now you're at a stage in your journey where you're feeling well enough to reach out to other folks and you're mm -hmm. beginning to share your journey in various places, including a podcast like this one. So talk yes. about your outreach and why you feel called to now reach out to other folks and also talk to us about how that is a part of your healing journey. It's part of my healing journey because this in itself is the first time I've actually openly spoken with um, two other people about my journey. Of course, like my direct circle have spoken with me about it, but it's the first time I'm branching out. And I think it's an important thing because if I didn't know the story of my friend who's had, you know, her journey with Lyme disease, I would not have gotten a diagnosis. I know that for sure. I honestly don't know where I would be and I, I tell her all the time I said to her I was like you you know knowing you and knowing your journey and knowing your story has saved my life because I don't see myself ever have figuring out what was going on in the climate that I was in and the environment that I was in I would not have known. So now let me ask you the last question we ask everyone on our podcast and that is if God forbid after this podcast your partner came walking into your room and he had a tick biting him on his arm. What do you recommend that he would do so that he wouldn't have to go through the suffering you've gone through on your Lyme disease journey? I've got a three-step answer to this. <laughs> Number one, I would empower the immune defenses, um, however suited to the body. Um, bring in some sort of provoking teams, so that'd be antimicrobials, um, and then bring in a detox team. I think people forget about the detox side of things. 
That would be my three-step plan. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Maxine Janssens. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Maxine, please visit our Instagram page at maxijans, M-A-X-I-J-A-N-S. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get the automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.